Professor Arend, it's wonderful to have you here today. Um, I'm Leslie Benjamori. I co-direct the Center for the International Politics of Conflict, Rights, and Justice here at SOAS. And we are welcoming Professor Anthony Arend from Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Professor Arend is Professor of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He is also the Senior Associate Dean for Graduate and Faculty Affairs and is the Director of the Masters of Science and Foreign Service Program at the School of Foreign Service. So is extraordinarily well known at Georgetown and beyond. It's a very real honor for us to have you here tonight. So thank you for coming to SOAS. It is my honor to be here with you all. It's wonderful to have you back. I know you've you've been to London many times, but it's the first time I think at least recently that we've been able to get you to SOAS. So that's a real treat for us. Tony, if that's all right. Um, you've you've written for years, really. You're you're an expert on international law the use of force, human rights, terrorism, constitutional law. Uh, we all we look to you, really, to, to help us understand um, the pressing issues in the contemporary international politics and what the law has to say about them. And your most recent work, and the reason that you are here this evening to speak to our community, and, and actually there are many people coming from beyond, which is wonderful to see, people from across London, schools, universities, NGOs. It's really, it's been, the, the, the interest in your work is extraordinary. But you're here to speak about the book that you've edited together with Mark Lagon, who is, of course, president of Freedom House, on human dignity and the future of global institutions. So this is a new turn for you, human dignity. Can you say a little bit to, to sort of start us out on why human dignity? What value does human dignity as a concept and an idea and a motivating principle have for you in this book that you've written? Well, that's a wonderful question. One of the challenges that we've had is that there is a large human rights community. And when we started the project, many people said to us, are you, are you denigrating human rights literature? Are you throwing that term out the window? And our answer is decidedly no. Our real goal here is to find something that is both more primordial than human rights and at the same time more teleological than human rights. Now, now what do I mean by that? On the one hand, our sense is that the concept of human dignity really precedes any notion of international institutions, international organization, or international law. It is something that is core to the individual identity. And so we, we chose this term in part because of that, but also in a recognition that as we surveyed various religions throughout the world, as we looked at what various states people were saying, as we looked at even what pundits were saying, what we found is that so many people use this concept of human dignity that it, there seemed to be a consensus. It seemed to resonate in ways that human rights didn't. So that's the, the primordial nature of it. It, it sort of pre-exists international human rights law. At the same time, I mentioned that we see it as teleological. Here what we really mean is that the idea of human rights law is not to serve itself, but to promote human dignity, to create a circumstance where individuals are able to exercise agency, are able to thrive, are able to realize their gifts. So as we look at human rights, what we see is it falls within, if you will, underneath of, if you will, the umbrella of human dignity with the goal that human rights law, whether specified in the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, has as its goal the promotion of human dignity in the long term. Now, we've had some disputes with this. One of the early conferences we had when we were discussing the concept 
One of my friends from the legal advisor's office at the U.S. Department of State said, well, you're, you're throwing out all these human rights agreements. You're doing it. And I said, no, 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 no. We support all those human rights agreements, but we're trying to give us a concept that is not seen as limiting as human rights and also, to be honest, is not seen as Western-influenced as much human rights law is. Oh, well, that's fascinating. Let me ask you about this then. So not as limiting as human rights. Can you say more about that more specifically? How is it that human rights has come to be seen by those of you who are really trying to take us, I don't know if it's back to human dignity or to human dignity. Both. But in what ways is human rights limiting? And how does how does human dignity solve that problem? Well, one way in which I think human rights has been perceived as limiting, and I, and I mentioned this uh, a little bit before, is that to many from non-Western parts of the world, they see the international human rights regime as something which the West has tried to impose on the world. If you go back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I think was an extraordinarily important moment in the history of international relations, so Eleanor Roosevelt, a, a, a great world leader, but nonetheless an American, chaired the Human Rights Commission. The United States pushed for the Genocide Convention. Well, they didn't ratify it until 1988, but nonetheless pushed for the Genocide Convention. The United States pushed for a lot of these instruments on human rights. And so many people see that, rightly or wrongly, as a, a Western instrument. So that's one way it's limiting. When I talk about human rights in the developing world, they're thinking, well, you're talking about this Western version. Whereas when I talk about human dignity, if I can explain the concept a little more deeply, it resonates with them in a different way. But there's another way in which we suggest that, that human rights might be limiting. And that is, many times when we think of rights, we think of equality of individuals. And as we look at, say, the evolution of women's rights or civil rights, we see that equality is an important step. Women need to be given the right to vote. Women need to be given the right to equal pay for equal work and, and, and so on. And that's an equal, that's an equal nature. But the same token, people are different. Women are different than men. Women have children. Men don't have children. People who have disabilities, at a level they need to be treated equally, but because they have a disability, there are certain ways in which they need to be accommodated. Sometimes the rights discourse gets caught up in the, the equality of things and misses the fact that human dignity says you need to teach and treat an individual with the respect due to whatever their, their position, their status would be. So you need to acknowledge that, that women have children and that as a consequence, they're going to be bearing children. They're going to be out of the workplace. And so you need to recognize that in a way that would be different from the way you would recognize a man. Now, let me let me ask you about sure. this, because this, this is fascinating. And you talk about this in, in the chapter that you wrote with Mark Lagon. Um, but, but of course, in, in human rights, there's also this debate between and an accommodation, some people think, of group rights, mm -hmm. which is another way of trying to square the circle of individual versus group rights. We have religious freedom. We have a number of vehicles, I guess, for beginning to think about collective categories of people. But it, it but it's, but the critique that you are offering is that still doesn't take us far enough. Um, and I guess human dignity takes us beyond. We hope it does. The group. Okay. We, we, we hope it does. Again, it's sort of the the respect that is due the difference. 
still focusing on on the individual, but the respect that is due the difference. Now, of course, it's easy to say that 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 flows off the tongue very nicely. The actual challenge, of course, is is implementing that. And what does that mean? What does that mean with respect to the rights of women? What does it mean with respect to the rights of people who are disabled? What does it mean with respect to gay lesbian rights? How, how does this actually translate into reality? That's the challenge. But our view is by using the term human dignity, we can convey something deeper than sometimes the human rights literature and the human rights discourse is conveyed. So you do need to you do need to create some way of mobilizing this this concept. So of course, a lot of people who write about human rights and think about the developing world to take us back to your your sort of locating this as not being a Western imposition. That's the beauty of dignity. But the the beauty of human rights, some people argue, is that local individuals and civil society organizations in Africa or Asia or the Middle East or wherever can look to these international instruments and mobilize on the basis of their international human rights and get some traction and leverage as well as resources vis-a-vis their own governments that may or may not be or in many cases are not respecting their rights. So how does how does human dignity because it's on the one hand it does seem like a broader concept and it does seem like it's not a Western imposition, but you still have to get mobilizing capacity and traction and the ability to have some enforcement and protection for your dignity. So how do you do that? Well, and that's a good question. On the one hand, I think it's very true that the concept of human rights and human rights instruments can be a tremendously motivating factor. I think about something like the Helsinki Accords, which were not even a legally binding document, but for some reason, Pravda decided to print the whole thing, and Neues Deutschland in Germany printed the entire thing. And so people went down to the immigration offices saying, here's a document which says we have the right to immigrate under certain circumstances, that there can be reunification of families, that individuals have human rights. It was a tremendous catalyst for human rights movements in the Soviet Union at the time and in Eastern Europe. So those documents can have a very, very powerful impact, and we don't want to detract from them. But on the other hand, there is a sense in which we think that the concept of human dignity, because it it is more primordial and because it is the goal of the human rights instruments that we would argue, can have an even greater impact because you can appeal to something that hopefully comes across at a higher philosophical plane and says, these are why we have these instruments, but our ultimate goal is this. Our ultimate goal is not to implement the provisions of the uh, instruments just to do it, but rather to promote human dignity. One of the things that the Universal Declaration, for instance, lacked is when they were putting it together, they really didn't develop a justification for these rights. Why are we doing it? And I think part of the reason was in 1948, they couldn't get any kind of consensus on that. Well, that means that the documents are not necessarily interpreted in light of their ultimate justification or in light of their ultimate goal. So we're hoping that this term will will help provide that assistance and will help be a justification as to why we have these instruments. So what is, how does human dignity relate to the law? Is it something that you imagine being becoming embedded in more conventional international legal forms? Does it, it, does it gain its traction really also through the law? So I guess I would say the law seeks to achieve human dignity. And human dignity can be the lens through which we can understand and interpret the law, which I think is important. One of the challenges we saw after the Universal Declaration was adopted is that 
we had these various instruments, whether the covenants or the torture convention, the genocide convention, and we would look at them from different perspectives. And while they would say the same thing in their words, they would be interpreted in light of the ideology. So people in the West would interpret the two covenants differently and value one over the other. The Soviet Union and its allies would interpret them a different way because they were seeing them through the lens of their you know, Western ideology, socialist ideology, various development ideologies. So our sense is if we can use human dignity as a lens through which they can be seen, the legal provisions will be more similar in the way they're interpreted with a view towards achieving this purpose. So we haven't talked about religion. Mm. And um, the, the modern international human rights movement portrays itself as a secular movement. We can discuss the origins. They might be much more complicated than that. But human dignity seems to embrace its yes. faith-based and religious origins. You are, of course, at Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit university. Um, can you say more about its relationship? Presumably, it's not exclusively religion and religious in its origins or faith-based, but it must have some capacity to bring together faith-based actors, secular actors, multi-faith orientations. Um, what what is the what is the concrete role of religious groups and religious organizations in engaging with this question of dignity as an alternative vehicle for thinking about? Humanity, I guess. And I think that's a very, very important observation because one of the things we start off with in the book is, and it's not an exhaustive list, but we explore what various religious leaders have said about the concept of human dignity. And one of the things that struck us is that so many religions use the concept. They may articulate it in slightly different ways, but they seem to be very comfortable with the idea of human dignity. And so our sense is that if we look at people from various religions, whether it's, it's, it's Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, we start to see this common understanding, there's an appreciation for human dignity. And then if we look at the, the secular traditions, whether it's the, the Enlightenment or other secular traditions, even Marxism, there's the idea of, of human dignity being valued. And so our view is without imposing a, a, a Procrustean understanding or definition, that that can be a way of bringing a lot of different groups together and say, we can have a consensus that there's this concept of human dignity. Now let's work together to try to define it and implement it. One thing we say in the book, and we're very serious about this, is our goal is to promote a dignitarian dialogue, meaning we want to set this notion out there, this concept, and say there seems to be consensus, but let's struggle together to define it. We propose a definition in the book, but we make it clear it's a working definition. One of our goals is to get the interaction going among people of different religious faiths, uh, different countries, different socioeconomic levels, and see if this concept can perhaps animate common work and common consensus. It's, it's fascinating to me, but I, I imagine you must have people that don't like this. It must, there must be something at stake or it would have replaced or done more than just supplement the language of human rights, which of course remains dominant um, amongst international lawyers, amongst international human rights NGOs, amongst many people. And you hear the language of dignity, but you certainly don't hear it anything 
in anything to the degree or the extent or uh, that you do the language of international human rights. So who who's resisting you and and how robust is that resistance? Is it active resistance? Is it um, trying to ignore what what form does it take and and who's sort of behind the pushback I guess against this effort to make dignity the the more fundamental concept. Well, on the one hand, I'd like to think that uh, the concept has gotten out there enough that there can be some serious pushback. I mean, part of what Mark Lagon and I are trying to do is, is introduce it. We've had a series of conferences and activities, but we just want to get it out there in the discourse. So right now we're kind of still getting it out there in the discourse, but there has been pushback. So part of the pushback has come from international legal scholars or international lawyers who have said, this will destroy the existing human rights architecture that has been established. Now, and those are people based primarily in the United States and Europe, presumably? or At least that's where I've heard it come from. Now, there may be others, but that, but that would be one pushback. Another pushback, and I'm not sure I've actually heard this, but certainly one way that if I were to push back, I would push back and say, well, this term's still too vague. Hmm. It, it, it's, it's without a lot of content. Anytime you seek a concept on which there is a consensus, you have to do it at a high level of generality. And so someone might say, therefore, the term has no real content. And I think it's a fair criticism. My feeling is it does have content, and part of what we're advocating is moving toward this dialogue, which can promote greater content. But honestly, I think there might be best conceptualized as a path dependency. People are using the human rights literature, talking about those things. I will say that there have been in the same year our book was published, a number of other books that have also used the concept human dignity. It's something that, to, to put two very different people on the, on the same platform, it's something the Pope has used, Pope Francis, and Barack Obama has used. <laughs> Who's here in London today. Who, who is in London uh, today. I wonder if he will use the term human dignity while he is, he is meeting with David Cameron. I don't know. But, but in any event, so it, it has been something which has been, been resonating. And my suspicion is that both of those individuals, for example, are using it very sincerely. They may be using it a little bit differently, but in part they're using it as a term which they're assuming everyone is going to buy into. Who's going to say, well, we don't support human dignity? Whereas someone might say, I don't support ratification of the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. But one can imagine a context where a vague concept that's easy to latch onto, like dignity, could be used not to recognize difference, but to entrench difference in a way that some people and some groups might not want. So it's one thing to recognize the dignity of women. It's another thing to make that a requirement that women play a particular role in a particular society or a particular state. So you, you can see where the vagueness of it, perhaps, and the inequality in a good way in it, right, the recognition of difference is also potentially an embedding of inequality. And you can see how, you know, in the wrong hands, it could be manipulated in a way that, of course, the law can be, but there's something about the law that because of its clarity, and you'll, of course, turn to me and say, oh, the law isn't clear, um, but because of its, we assume that it has clarity, that it, that it offers more protection. I mean, that's a very good point. And our view here would be 
that this is where the law helps. If we see the law as an instrument to promote human dignity, then what we can say is we're not saying anything different from what's in the covenant on civil and political rights or the covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. We're simply saying their goal is ultimately to promote this concept, the establishment of human dignity. So we're not doing away with the existing legal rules. We are saying in certain cases we need to go beyond those rules. But we're hoping that because it's embedded in the existing law that we won't have a pushback in that direction. Tony, let me ask you one final question, and that's about your own subset. You also have your own chapter in addition to helping with much of the book and writing the introduction and and theorizing human dignity. But you write about terrorism and counterterrorism. And of course, the rest of the world has looked at America since 9-11, and thought about Guantanamo, it's thought about extraordinary rendition, it's seen the United States as not living up to its ideals that it's that it's supported and created globally. How does this concept of human dignity perhaps help us rethink and reevaluate policies when it comes to the really tough questions out there? when democracies, liberal democracies, rights respecting democracies find them in a position, find themselves in a position where they're trying to fight back against really difficult um, actors that don't play by the rules and and suddenly, you know, end up with Guantanamo, a sort of seemingly intractable problem. How does how does this concept of dignity help us with that? Well, this is something that I think is very important. And as you noted, I wrote a specific chapter in there on human dignity and terrorism and counterterrorism. I think the United States behaved and is continuing in many respects to behave shamelessly with respect to its treatment of individuals who have been detained. Uh, It saddens me when I look at the response after September 11th, where individuals were tortured, where individuals were waterboarded where individuals were subjected to indefinite detention, where claims were made that these individuals have no dignity and have no rights. To me, this is a shameful period in the history of of American foreign policy. I believe that the human dignity lens allows us to look at someone, whether it's Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or Abu Zabeda, or whichever individual you want to get from Al-Qaeda or ISIS and say, this person is still a human being. They may have done something despicable. They may have committed horrible crimes, and they appropriately can be brought to justice for them. But they do not lose their human dignity. They must still be treated humanely. They must be treated in accordance with international human rights law, with international humanitarian law. And sadly, the United States did not follow through on this. It's far too easy to say they forfeited their right to be treated this way. This is where I think human dignity really helps us. Because if we look through this lens, we say at some level, how would I want to be treated? How would I as a human being want to be treated? Even if I have committed a crime, even if I have committed some kind of horrible offense, I still maintain my dignity and maintain the right to be treated humanely. So my feeling is this lens actually helps us. If in the minds of a decision maker, they wouldn't just say, well, what can we get away with under the law? When I look at the Bybee memoranda that were put out by the Justice Department, aside from the fact that I think it's very poor legal reasoning in both those memoranda, the goal seemed to be, how can we skirt the law? 
How can we at least interpret the law so we can do what we want to do? Human dignity would say, whether you can interpret the law one way or another, what does human dignity demand? How should every individual be treated? For our audience who's listening today, we should understand that your lecture tonight will be specifically on this and more, but the focus will be on terrorism, counterterrorism, and human dignity. And that will be recorded, so we can also encourage you to... um, to listen to that lecture, which will be posted on the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy website, and perhaps so as radio. Professor Arend, it's been extraordinary to have you here. We're really looking forward to this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. My honor.